Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey guys, Eileen here. Before the show, I wanted to tell you about something exciting. July 15th at 2 p.m., there will be a meetup in San Francisco with Allie from Insight, Esther from Once Upon a Crime, and yours truly. We'll meet at the Keystone Bar and Restaurant, and that is located on 4th Street between Market and Mission in beautiful San Francisco. So join Allie, Insight, Esther, Once Upon a Crime, and Colleen and I. We'll get some drinks, eat some food, chat true crime. So mark your calendars, July 15th, 2 p.m., the Keystone in San Francisco. Details will be posted on our pages and in our groups, so you can get the information there. We're really excited to host Allie all the way from Australia and Esther in our home city. So again, mark your calendars, July 15th, 2 p.m., and we hope to see you there. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and as always, joining me is Colleen. How are you doing, Colleen? I'm good. I'm ready for the weekend. It's Pride in San Francisco, so we might go to the parade tomorrow. Uh, how are you? Yes, happy Pride to everyone. We should definitely go check out the parade. It's kind of funny, though. We've lived here, like, we lived in the Bay for seven years, and I think we've been to Pride mm-hmm. once. Um, but we did, the one time I did go to Pride, I rode with Dykes on bikes, actually with Nicole on the back of my bike and our friend on the back of um, Emily's bike, and it was actually really, really, really fun. Oh, that's so cute. I like the pictures from that. I've seen them before. Um, we have a couple reviewers to thank. So thank you to EKB5436, back1222, Janine, Rats Today, and Away <laughs> Laughing on a Fast Camel. That's literally my favorite name. I know. Uh, thank you for your feedback. Reviews help people find the podcast and it helps us grow. So thanks again. You know, if you're liking the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or whatever app you listen to podcasts on. We also have a couple of patrons to thank. Thank you to Gemma and Chantel for your support of the show. We'll be shipping your rewards out very soon. If you're interested in supporting the show and scoring some merchandise, head over to patreon.com slash misconduct podcast to check it out. In early 1999, two men were arrested in connection with a missing woman from Linden, California. Law enforcement suspected the two of kidnapping and killing the woman. They just didn't know why. What they did not expect was that they would end up with a serial killer case on their hands. The media dubbed the two the speed freak killers because their MO was to go on a meth bender and hunt for random victims. They operated purely on crimes of opportunity, yet eluded law enforcement for over 15 years. Today, we will discuss the two men, where they came from, their crime spree, and their ultimate undoing. Lauren Herzog and Wesley Shermantine were two friends who grew up together in Linden, California. Linden is a small town outside of Stockton uh, in the San Joaquin Valley. They grew up in the same neighborhood and had been friends their entire lives. Um, During their childhood, they were known as loners who would only hang out with each other, and they were also known for bullying other kids. In adulthood, they continued to hang out together and there were regulars at the local bar. They also had a pretty mean meth habit and often used drugs together. 
As children, they were inseparable from the time they were three years old. Herzog was known as a quiet boy, and his best friend Shermantine was known as a troublemaker and more of like the ringleader. One schoolmate said of Shermantine, he was always the one who would create the mess that we didn't need. Hmm. Shermantine's older sister remembers him differently as a child. She remembers him as kind and always willing to help out whenever he could. She also said that he took Herzog under his wing and considered him to be a brother. She also said that they enjoyed a comfortable middle-class upbringing, and they were from what everyone could tell. They were from, you know, quote-unquote good families. In the 70s, the neighborhood in Linden, where they grew up, was sleepy and safe, and everyone knew everyone. The two boys had a picture-perfect upbringing in Linden. They spent a ton of time outside exploring the woods and hills and all around the rural town, fishing, hunting, camping. Shermantine's sister said they knew every mineshaft, spring, and rock formation in the area. The area they explored and knew so well as kids would later be the same places they would dump the bodies of their victims. On November 14, 1998, Cynthia Ann Vander Heiden, also known as Cindy, had just turned 25 years old. That Saturday night, she had planned to meet up with her friend at a karaoke bar. But sometime during the night, she ran across Lauren Herzog. She was familiar with Herzog because she had grown up in the area, and Herzog and Sherman Tyne were a little bit older, but they were regular fixtures at the Linden Inn bar. It would be at this bar that she would run into Herzog and take him up on his offer to hang out that night. Cindy was last seen leaving the bar with Herzog. Cindy was very close with her family, and she was reported missing right away. Police quickly honed in on their prime suspects, because by this time, the two men had gained well-known reputations for being meth heads and partiers who were generally up to no good. Uh, They were also the people who were reported to be last seen with Cindy, but despite this, the police investigation stretched into early 1999. There was a break in the case when Sherman Tyne's car was repossessed in mid-January 1999. While the car was repossessed, the San Joaquin County Sheriff searched the car. Inside, they found blood, which was sent to the lab for testing. While they waited for results, this is 1999, so DNA wasn't you know as sophisticated as it is today, the police picked up Herzog. Since the two were friends, police figured that Herzog might have an idea of how the blood ended up in Sherman Tyne's car. Herzog was extensively questioned in Cindy's disappearance. There is a lot of footage of this available online. We'll link it for you if you want to check it out. Herzog was questioned multiple times. And as time went on, he started to tell bits and pieces to the detectives about what he and Shermantine had been up to for the last 15 years. Not only had the two killed Cindy, Herzog described an additional three murders that the two committed that weren't even on law enforcement's radar yet. According to Herzog, the two would get high on mess and kill at random. And they had been doing this for a long time at least 15 years to be specific. Well, according to Herzog, he only helped find people, but Shermantine was the one responsible for the actual killing. They gave no motive other than opportunity for their crime spree. In Cindy's case, Herzog described a scene where Shermantine attacked Cindy and he just passively let it happen. He said he basically turned away when Shermantine tackled her to the ground then raped and killed her. When asked by the police if she asked Herzog for help, he said yes, she begged him to help her to do something to basically make it stop. He chose, though, to stand there and do nothing. Based on this, Herzog and Shermantine were arrested on counts of kidnapping, rape, and murder in the March of 1999. Her body was not yet found, so the trial proceeded without the discovery of a body as evidence. While under questioning, Herzog also said the pair killed three other people and provided the details of the murder to the police. 
1994, the two were in Utah and shot a hunter to death. Utah officials confirmed that a hunter had been shot to death in the time frame and the area provided by Herzog and that the case remained unsolved. Herzog also took credit for the murder of Henry Howell in Alpine County off of Highway 88 in September of 1984. Herzog said the pair passed Howell, pulled over on the highway. They decided to turn around and go back. Sherman Teen stopped the car, took Herzog's gun, and shot Howell to death and stole his wallet. They made about $11 from that robbery. The third person Herzog confessed to murdering was Roberta Armstrout, also known as Robin, in September of 1985. She was from Stockton, a city nearby Linden. Now that the police realized they had a pair of serial killers on their hand, they ramped up their investigation into the two men. More murder charges were added to the list. In November of 1984, the bodies of Henry King and Raymond Cavanaugh were found shot to death near Henry King's car a couple miles east of Stockton. The final charge added was a murder charge for... 16-year-old Chevelle Wheeler, who disappeared outside of Franklin High School in Stockton in 1985. Chevelle was also known as Chevy to her friends and family, and on October 16th, she told her friends she was skipping class for the rest of the day so she could hang out with a guy at his family's mountain cabin. One of her friends said she seemed a bit nervous when it came time for her to leave. Chevy told her friend that if she didn't show up to school the next day, that her friend needed to call her dad and tell her that she ditched school to go hang out with a guy. She then left with a man driving a red truck. When Chevy didn't make it to school the next day, the friend called her dad, and her dad immediately called the police. Police narrowed down their suspect list to one name. There was a man who was a family friend who drove a red truck, and he was a couple years older than Chevy. He was first introduced to the family when he showed Chevy's dad how to set up a better sound system in their car, and after that, he would routinely hang out at the Wheeler house and listen to music with Chevy. The man's name? Wesley Shermantine. Police pursued him as a suspect. You know, he had a red truck. He hung out with her regularly, and he had actually called to speak with Chevy the morning that she disappeared. But he denied that he was the one who picked her up from school, and he said that he knew nothing about her disappearance. He even went so far as to call the Wheeler house to assure the family that he had nothing to do with their daughter's disappearance. Shermantine's dad owned a cabin in the mountains east of Stockton. They spent time searching the cabin, and they found hair they believed belonged to Chevy, and they also found blood. Unfortunately, in 1985, DNA testing wasn't advanced enough to match to Chevy, and law enforcement released Shermantine due to lack of concrete evidence. When Shermantine and Herzog were arrested in 1999, police reopened Chevy's case. Significant strides have been made in DNA testing over the 14 years since her disappearance, and the lab confirmed that the hair and blood found in the cabin belongs to Chevy. Both men were charged with murder. Her remains, like Cindy's, had not been discovered, so the murder trial proceeded without a body. The men blamed each other for the murder, each claiming they had the means to do it on their own. They said that they were both friends with her and that even though the cabin belonged to Shermantine's father, Herzog had a key. Because of their known use of methamphetamine, especially when committing the murders, the media dubbed the two the speed freak killers. As the body count climbed, the men started to turn on each other. Herzog had been saying from the beginning that he was present for Cindy's murder, but he did not partake in it. That set off a merry-go-round of the blame game that you played during the investigation. Both men denied involvement of the murders, but said for sure the other one was responsible. Usually it was a variation of, well, Herzog killed her, I was just there, or we were both hanging out with them, but then Shermantine just shot them. 
Because of the conflicting stories and sometimes limited evidence available, the charges were different for the two, even though law enforcement believed they committed all the murders together. Herzog was charged with five counts of murder for the deaths of Cindy, Henry Howell, Paul Cavanaugh, Howard King, and Robin Armtrout. He was found guilty of murder in Cindy, Paul Cavanaugh, and Howard King's cases, accessory to murder in the Henry Howell murder, and acquitted of the charge for Robin Armtrout. He was sentenced to 78 years in prison in 2001. Shermantine was charged and convicted with four counts of murder for Cindy, Howard King, Paul Cavanaugh, and Chevy Wheeler. He was sentenced to death and is currently incarcerated in San Quentin State Prison in Marin County, California. Shermantine has always maintained that he did not kill anyone. He simply witnessed Herzog kill all the victims. During the trial, Shermantine addressed Chevy's parents directly multiple times. He would tell them, sometimes through tears, that he had nothing to do with Chevy's murder and he would never hurt her. Other times, he would flip and be cruel towards them. In one instance, he turned to her parents and said that when he dies, his parents will know where he's buried, but they will never know where Chevy is buried. Nice fucker. I know, seriously. Ugh. Shermantine also tried to make a deal with the police that he would reveal the location of more victims in exchange for $20,000. This was rejected. Prosecutors tried to make a deal with him to remove the death penalty from the table in exchange for the location of Cindy and Chevy's bodies, but Shermantine refused. In 2004, an appeals ruling stated that three of the four confessions Herzog gave to law enforcement were coerced and overturned those convictions. The fourth confession was for the conviction of Cindy's murder, and the case was ordered to go to retrial. Rather than go through a whole new trial, prosecution offered Herzog a plea deal. He accepted and pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and furnishing amphetamine in Cindy's case and then accessory to murder in the Kavanaugh, King, and Howell cases. This cut his sentence down to 14 years, and he received six years for time already served. Because he had a record of good behavior in prison, Herzog ultimately served just 11 years before he was paroled from Norco Prison in Southern California in 2010. This didn't sit well with the families of the victims or with the general public. This was a known serial killer who the public believed was essentially being paroled on a technicality. No counties wanted to take responsibility for handling his parole, so the Department of Corrections was forced to take responsibility for him and they had no choice but to make a special exception for him. They paroled him to a trailer right outside the gates of the High Desert State Prison in Susanville, California. He was managed by the employees of the prison. Susanville is the far northeast corner of California and is a rural town that houses two prisons, and a good portion of the town's adults are employed by the prisons. Herzog was required to wear a GPS bracelet that alerted his parole officer when he was more than 150 feet away from his trailer. His visitors had to check in and out with the prison before visiting him in his trailer. He also had to be in the trailer between the hours of 8.30 p.m. and 5.30 a.m. Herzog stayed there for two years. On January 16, 2012. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, 46-year-old Lauren Herzog was found hanging in his trailer. He was pronounced dead the following morning. It came out that a bounty hunter from Sacramento named Leonard Padilla recently offered Sherman Teen $33,000 to lead him to more victims. Sherman Tyne agreed. He drew maps that he assured Padilla would lead to the victims he was convicted of killing and more victims that he and Herzog had not even been prosecuted for. There were three locations indicated on the maps where the bodies could be found. An old well was marked on the map by Sherman Tyne as Herzog's Boneyard. Sherman Tyne indicated that Herzog did all the killing and that he would testify to that fact. Padilla showed the maps to Herzog, who killed himself shortly after finding out. Padilla said Herzog all but started hyperventilating when he relayed the news, leading Padilla to believe he knew he would end up on death row with Sherman Tyne. The first site that was excavated was the well that was marked Herzog's Boneyard. San Joaquin Sheriff's Department faced a lot of criticism for how they ran the investigation into the well. Basically, they brought a backhoe in to dig the site Mm. instead of following industry standard guidelines. And as a result, the remains of the victims were fractured further and disturbed in a way that destroyed crime scene evidence. I mean, just imagine taking like one of those claw things and just digging into a crime scene. Yeah, it doesn't seem right. Smart. Yeah. One actually one like expert said they treat dinosaur bones with more respect than they treated, you know, the possibility of finding human remains. Right. It was widely considered to be an inappropriate, careless and amateur mistake. And it's unknown how much vital evidence was destroyed. You just can never know how much you just ruined. Even though they started at a disadvantage because of the way the crime scene was disturbed, they managed to identify remains of multiple people, but there are more remains that are still unidentified. 19-year-old Kimberly Ann Billy went missing in December of 1984, and 16-year-old Joanne Hobson went missing in August of 1985. Both were from Stockton. Both of their remains were found in the well. The remains of a third victim and a fetus were recovered and remained still unidentified. There are also fragments and remains that point to more victims being in the well who have yet to be identified. Shermantine said he thinks up to 12 victims were buried in that well. Also found in the well were personal items such as coats, shoes, purses, jewelry that all belonged to more than three people. Joanne Hobson was connected to another victim of the Speed Freak Killers. She attended the same high school and even knew Chevy Wheeler. Joanne disappeared weeks before Chevy. Because of the connection, Joanne's parents immediately suspected that she met a similar fate and even attended the murder trials. 
During a court outburst, Sermentine yelled at Joanne's parents that Herzog had been on a date with her the night that she died. Because of this, the news their daughter was found was a bittersweet relief. Kimberly's missing persons case was not initially tied to the Speed Freak killers, but once long since missing people were starting to be identified, family members who had missing loved ones began contacting law enforcement. There were still two more sites to investigate, and they held out hope that they could bring their family member home. The second two sites were on a property formerly owned by Sherman Tyne's parents, and one body was found at each site. In February 2012, in a shallow grave, the body of Chevy Wheeler was found. Also found was the lavender sweatshirt she had been wearing when she disappeared. Nearly 27 years after she was last seen, Chevy's parents were finally able to bring her home. In a ravine a short distance away, the remains of Cindy Vander Heiden were discovered as well. Cindy had been missing for 14 years, and her parents had initially been worried that when Herzog killed himself that they would never find their daughter. After Shermantine's lead on the three excavation sites yielded results, investigators were eager to get him talking. Shermantine managed to negotiate with investigators to get a brief release from prison in September 2012 to lead investigators to other bodies. Shermantine had been writing letters to the media about the negotiations with Patia and law enforcement. He also provided criticism to the sheriff's department, particularly how they excavated the well with a backhoe. He repeatedly said he had no involvement killing anyone. He just happened to know where Herzog dumped the bodies. In the letters, he stated he knew where more bodies were and would talk for the right price. And since Herzog was dead, he was the only living person who could help find the 70 or so victims Shermantine claimed Herzog killed. We will post the letters so you can read them on our on our blog post. You can see where he said one of the victims in the first well is a pregnant African-American female. This is a woman that was suggested could be Tony Danielle Clark that we talked about our last episode. In September 2012, Shermantine got his wish. He was taken down to Linden personally to take investigators to burial sites. Once there, he led them to former wells and excavations began. The search did not turn up any new victims. On February 13, 2013, it was announced that the search for new victims was ending due to lack of discovery. It became clear that either Shermantine didn't know where any more victims were, or he was lying to send law enforcement on a wild goose chase. Shermantine has also offered to provide locations of burial sites of other death row inmates. He says he's willing to show them where if they can take him out to the sites as they did before, but to date his offer has not been taken up by law enforcement. Altogether, Shermantine and Herzog were convicted of killing five people. Upon excavating the well, they've identified two more victims and have another unidentified victim. This brings the lowest possible number of victims to eight. Since so many bone fragments were found in the well, the actual number of victims is obviously higher. Law enforcement estimates that there may be as many as 20 victims. Shermantine himself claims that there are over 70. Investigators have not shot down this claim as inaccurate. It's just not been definitively proven. When victims were identified as cold missing persons cases, families with missing loved ones in the area began coming forward and making themselves known to law enforcement. There are several missing persons whose families believe that they are possible victims of the Speed Freak killers. Gail Marks was last seen on October 18, 1988 in Stockton. She had just finished applying for her driver's license and was due to start her shift at a local pizza place that night. She never showed... She also didn't show up the next morning to get her paycheck. It was then her mother said that she knew something was wrong and that her daughter was gone. When the Speed Freak killers were arrested in 1999, Gail's mother was notified that they were suspects in her daughter's disappearance. 
Excavations of the various burial sites did not yield any sign of Gail. This October will mark the 29th year she has been missing. Phil Martin has been missing since 1993. He was reported missing when he did not pick up his daughters from school. According to his nephew, they both worked on job sites that Shermantine and Herzog occasionally worked at, too. According to his nephew, all of Phil's daughters submitted DNA samples to be tested against possible remains. His family is fairly confident Phil fell victim to the Speed Freak killers. However, his remains have yet to be identified. On November 19, 1988, nine-year-old Michaela Garrett was on Thanksgiving break from school. That Saturday morning, she had a friend over, and the two asked to be allowed to go to the store to buy candy. At first, her mom said no, but eventually conceded because the corner store was only two blocks away. The two got on their scooters and rode over to the store. They left their scooters outside the front entrance, and when they were done, they walked out of the store and then started to walk home. Realizing they had left their scooters behind, they turned around and went back to get them. And when they got back to the front of the store, one of the scooters had been taken. After a quick search of the surrounding area and parking lot, Michaela found the scooter leaned up against the door of a car, and she walked the few feet to go get it. And as she picked it up by the handles, a man suddenly opened the car door and pulled her inside and drove off. Her friend screamed for help, and the store clerk called 911, and the police responded immediately, but there was no sign of the car or the girl. This November will mark the 29th year since Michaela disappeared. She's often mentioned in connection with the Speed Freak Killers because the sketch provided by Michaela's friend greatly resembles what Herzog looked like at the time. Herzog fits the age range and the general physical description, and we'll link the police sketch so you can see what we're talking about. And you know, there's issues about reliability of police mm-hmm. sketches. This one was pretty. But this on. one it looked, yeah, it looked like him. It looked a lot like him. The friend also said that the man had what she thought was bad acne, but some speculate that it could still be Herzog and that he didn't have acne. He had scabs from picking at his face due to excessive meth use. Shermantine also mentioned Michaela in his letters. I'm not sure if he mentioned her on his own or if he got the suggestion from media coverage, but in the letters, he points out the resemblance between Herzog and the police sketch. So this case, these men, they're just pieces of work. I mean, they're, it's just crazy to me that for 15 years they went around just indiscriminately killing f- f- for like 11 bucks here or 10 bucks here, for nothing. I mean, sometimes. And the range of victims truly is like indiscriminate. They have like adult males, adult females, seems maybe younger children. They're just the most scary killers, in my opinion. Literally, no reason. I don't know, just no rhyme or reason, and people just literally disappear off the face of the earth. I just really feel for the families of the victims um, and the families of the victims who haven't been identified yet. And it's got to be so hard, you know. Uh, Sherman Tyne is a piece of shit, in my opinion, who I think is taking police either on a, you know, on a wild goose chase and then going, oh, I know where these people are, and, you know, you're you're a horrible human being. And even if you're just sat there and did nothing, like, you're still horrible. So, I don't know. I think he's just trying to get out of prison a little, you know, little outside time little field trip. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and honestly, if I'm honest, it's cases like this that really test my opinion of the death penalty. <laughs> I have to say, you know, it really makes me think true. It just, ugh. it just, it was such a doozy. There's so much information to comb through. I almost considered putting it into two parts because mm-hmm. you could go on and on and on about, I mean, there's lists of people who are make the case that they're, you know, missing family member could Mm be a victim of the speed freak killers or like, you know, there's evidence that they were 
in this area of California at this time. And there's all these missing people that went missing at the same period of time. Mm -hmm. There's like three or four instances of different areas in California. It's, it's crazy. The full extent I think of their crimes is just not known. Yeah. You know, it goes to show though, like just, I never heard of this case and they're like, how much can like fly under the radar? I feel like it's like very close to where we live now. And I've never heard of it, but it's a very like notorious. There's a long victim list Mm -hmm. of, in this crime. Uh, but while researching this case, all I can think about was the victim's family. It was so heartbreaking to have, you know, this person's convicted of your daughter's murder. And then he turns around and refuses to tell you where she is yeah. for decades, a decade Correct. and a half. Yeah. I just can't even begin to imagine the pain they went through. And then all of these family members who have loved ones who've been missing for, you know, 10 or 20 years. And mm-hmm. oh, they're, they cling to just the hope that maybe this guy will tell them where more bodies are buried. So maybe their family member could be inside. Yeah. It's just awful. It is painful beyond, you know, belief. And just to be beholden to the whims of this guy on death row is just, yeah, it is awful. He holds the key to finding more victims, but he just doesn't seem interested in leading investigators to any more. Yeah. Well, for the right price. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's just no winners. I think the body count is higher than the law enforcement estimate of 20. And I also think it's terrifying that these two men seem to kill indiscriminately with just little or no planning. They literally just like, Oh, that one. Yeah. Yeah. And they got away with it for 15 years. We came across this case while we were researching our last case about the disappearance of Tony Danielle Clark. And looking more into this, I think it's even less likely that the unidentified pregnant woman in the well is Tony. I wish yeah. it was just because it could bring her family closure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I just don't know when, you know, she would have crossed paths with the men. It would certainly be interesting to know if Tony's family had heard of the speed freak killers and submitted DNA like other families who yeah. did. Um as for Shermantine, I think it's hard to know what to take seriously and what to dismiss. On one hand, he did lead investigators to some remains. And I think he might have done that as a kind of like a fuck you to Herzog. Yeah. But now that Herzog's dead, you know, I don't know if he has any real motivation yeah. to reveal any more locations. Other than getting out her money. Yeah. And they're not offering him money. They're like, go screw yourself. Pretty much. Um because when he provided the second set of burial sites, there was nothing there. He just mm-hmm. got a field trip. Yep. Well, that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. Head over to our Facebook group and to discuss this week's case. If you're not already a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. Hop on over and let us know what you think. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. We also want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes who do our intro and outro music. Be sure to check them out on Bandcamp and listen to more of their stuff. If you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com. We will see you next week. This is Charlie. And this is Ali, two hosts from Two Continents. Every week we cover a new case from an unsolved mystery to a forgotten history to crimes that changed or challenged our legal system in some way. To get to know us and our podcast better, we recommend our episodes on Jean Spangler, Nicholas Barclay, the missing kid at the centre of the documentary The Imposter, and Alison Baden-Clay. New episodes go up every Monday. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.